I just want to warn you that in the following episode, there are some details about execution that really might be distressing to some people. Chavare Jaraboon was paid by the Thai prison service to single-handedly kill 55 people. That's 54 men and one woman. He did this during his 19-year career at the notorious Bang Quang prison, also known as the Bangkok Hilton. In Thailand, he was best known as, quote, the last executioner, because before they switched over to lethal injection, um, he, Chavare, would carry out each killing, not with just a gun, but with a submachine gun. What sort of man was he? How did he deal with such a challenging role? And how did he manage to square his spirituality with killing so many people? After all, he lived in a Buddhist country where belief in karma was very rife. How did he cope with this real threat of what might build up for him in the next life? Or indeed, the very real worry of vengeful spirits of those he had executed coming to torment him. Well, I'm Peter Laws, and tonight on Our Curious Past, we explore a controversial career that is rarely discussed as we meet Chavare Jaraboon, the man who legally killed 55 people single-handedly. Do you ever come home from work and think, man, that was a heavy day. I need to unwind a bit. It can be a challenge to kind of unhook from the pressures of work, particularly if you have an intense job. Well, it's not like Chavare Jaraboon turned up every day to work and had to execute someone on every single day. But as he worked on the execution team and eventually became the lead executioner, he did have to walk around that prison knowing that perhaps there was somebody in the community right now committing some sort of crime that was so serious that they were going to end up on death row in this prison and that he ultimately would be the one to pull the trigger and kill them. Now, I don't know about you, but that sort of pressure would weigh very heavily on me and I don't think I could... <laughs> I say I don't think, I know I could not do a job like that. Let me give you an example of how intense it really is. On the 23rd of November, 1984, Chavaret was scheduled for his first ever execution. Not to just, not just to shoot one prisoner, but two. The day before, he just celebrated his 36th birthday, knowing that in 24 hours' time, he would have to legally take the life of two human beings. In his autobiography, The Last Execution, Chavaret said that the prisoners that he had to kill that day were surprisingly calm. They followed the guards out of their prison wing, called escorts, and their eyes were fixed to the ground. There was silence as they walked, because Chavaret said, and he quote, I quote this from his book, like, what was there to say at that point? He said, you wouldn't insult a dead man walking by asking him if he was really guilty for the crime. That time had passed. All claims of innocence at this stage were, were kind of pointless. And so on that day, that first day, he had to take the lead on the execution. The two prisoners knew they were guilty and he knew they were guilty. And so as the men made their slow and silent walk to the execution chamber, Chavaret admits that he felt a little nervous. He made a special effort to shower and nap so he would feel fully refreshed for this task. He'd asked his wife, this is a woman called Chu, to iron his second uniform because he wanted to look his best for his duties. He'd been involved in executions before, we'll go into those in a moment, but this was his first day as the trigger man, the kind of the end of the chain. And so Chavaret prepared himself to kill them with a submachine gun. 
That means the prisoners would be pretty much torn apart. He said there was always so, so much blood afterwards. On that November day, he said his biggest desire was for the prisoner to die immediately when the bullets hit. He'd loaded 15 bullets into the machine gun chamber, though he expected he wouldn't need to use all of them. Because of his previous involvement, he'd seen executions go wrong. We'll hear about those. And uh, to see prisoners suffering is not what he wanted at all. So he was meticulous in his preparation. And so the two prisoners were placed into position and he raised his HK MP5. That's a West German submachine gun that was developed in the 1960s by the company Heckler & Koch. And it's one of the most widely used submachine guns on the planet. And so he aimed the barrel at the prisoner and got ready to shoot. But then he felt a beat of panic because in all the anticipation, he had forgotten to cock the gun. He stayed calm, knowing that all the officials and the rest of his team were watching him closely. And Chavare said that the only person in the room to really understand and realize his embarrassment in that moment at that early era was actually one of the condemned prisoners. The was one of them, a man called Lee, and he noticed. So he cocked the gun again, took aim, and he admits that in his mind, Chavaret pictured himself on stage, dressed like Elvis Presley, playing his guitar like he had done for American soldiers when he was young. And he took a breath, squeezed the trigger, and whether you find this appropriate or appalling, he did his job. Chavare Jarabin was born in Bangkok on the 22nd of November, 1948. His mother was his father's third wife. And when he was about four or five, his parents divorced, leaving his dad, a man called Chum Jarabun, to raise him and his brother, Oon. Chum was a teacher of art and drama, and Chavare hoped to become a teacher himself one day. And Chum really seemed open-minded, much more than many of Chavare's friends. Their dads were pushing their son to get join the army, but Chum said his son could be whatever he wanted to be. I can't imagine at the time that his dad had any clue of the career that Chavaret would eventually fall into. His first job was as a doorman at a bar in Patpong, but he said it was, even though it was a great place to perfect his English, he became a master at saying things like, good evening, sir, and what can I do for you, sir? He didn't like the job, so he quit it, and he spent his first pay packet on a lovely pair of shoes. He liked to look fashionable and sharp. But the revelation for him really came in 1966 when he got his first guitar. He was not not a natural musician, so it took him weeks and weeks to start making a reasonable sound strumming on the strings. But his dad, Chum, spotted his promise and made him a 15-watt amplifier, which Chavaret accidentally lost at a fair. But his dad didn't get angry at this at all. He just went out straight away, sold a bunch of ornaments that he'd collected over the years just so he could get the parts to make Chavaret a brand new amplifier. That's the type of man he was, Chavaret writes of his dad. Anyway, eventually he was playing in a band called Mitra, dressing like his heroes, Elvis Presley and Cliff Richard. And it's around here that they started performing for American soldiers who had arrived in Thailand looking for a break from the horrors of the Vietnam War. He said it was the Americans uh, who were not only great fun, but they also taught him how to curse with phrases in English like, fuck you and go to hell, god damn it. Yet when he reached his 20s, he realized that he just 
frankly, wasn't talented enough to make it as a serious career musician, especially since it was now 1969 and he had met his future wife, Chu, who I mentioned earlier. So after a stint in the army, he looked for other options. During this time, his father sadly died. It came after he and Chavaret were making paper hats for a football match one evening, yet they had a slightly awkward argument about his dad's house being dirty, and so his dad went off to listen to the radio. Chavaret says he saw him dancing by himself across the floor of his room. He used to do that quite a lot. He loved music too. He went to bed at 9pm saying he had a stomach ache, and by the next morning Chavaret woke to discover that his father had died in the night. He was devastated because he loved his kindly father very much and felt a lot of guilt at how they had argued the night before. Former students flocked to Chum's funeral and soon after the life was gone, another one appeared. Chavaret and Chu had their first child. But not long after this, Chavaret started a new job that would become his defining occupation in life. He became a prison guard at Bang Quang Central Prison. Now, Bang Quang had three types of prisoners at the time. One were the prisoners who were waiting for the appeals process that were pending. Others were people who were serving 25 years or more. And then finally, it was the people on death row awaiting execution. And there was an irony to Chavaret starting this role because his father had always been very supportive in his choice of work. Wherever he wanted to work, he was enthusiastic. He'd always like fully supported him. Chum went to see him in concert as often as he could. And yet Chavaret wrote that he was in some senses relieved that his dad never lived to see him take this job at the prison because he felt his dad, the teacher, would not have approved of this career choice. Nevertheless, he started at Bangkok prison on 10th of January, 1972, and he admits he felt very nervous walking through the six meter high walls into the notorious prison. This place, by the way, stank of pig manure since they kept livestock in the prison grounds. And his first job was to search the prisoners for weapons, to check they were wearing their prison uniforms correctly. And he said, honestly, that this was quite scary for him because his dad had always encouraged him to stay away from criminals and he had done so. He had not mixed with people like this at all. So this was a totally alien experience to be with robbers and drug dealers and, of course, murderers. But he did it, and he was pleased to see that many of the prisoners were pretty well behaved. And in time, he started to befriend the prisoners, and he even started taking extra seminars to understand criminals better. And now and then, he would find himself near death row, which held 280 convicts in 24 cells. That's about 14 men in some of the cells, about three to seven meters. There was a small toilet behind a waist-high wall, a rubbish bin, and the floor was bare cement. The place was lit by dim fluorescent tubes. Pretty horrible. He had to strip search prisoners every single day, which he didn't particularly like doing. But then, then a crime occurred in the community which would shock the province, and it would lead to an execution that would be the first he would ever witness. The year was 1971. On the 20th of December, 1971, a farmer discovered the body of a 10-year-old girl called Vari Songsu. She'd been beaten, strangled, and raped. And then clay had been pushed inside her throat, which had caused her to suffocate. 
The next day, police discovered that the crime had been carried out by eight young men, including a monk called Sain Ungu. This 21-year-old's dad was the chief authority in the village of Bangjak, and apparently Sain had been carried out carrying out many rapes in the area, but the villagers were too scared to report him because of the power of his father. The other perpetrators were underage, 15, 14, 16, and they cooperated fully with police, but 21-year-old Sane denied it all. But they had him, and so he was sentenced to death. By the time the execution came round, Chavaray had only been working at Bangkwang for less than 20 days. And this is where he learned the routine for the executions. On an execution day, the lunches would be served early so the other prisoners would quickly realize what was going on. And then they would all be locked in their cells. And then at later in the day, the condemned prisoner would have fingerprints and photos taken. They'd listen to an order of execution read to them, which they had to sign they would be at one point given a pen and a paper to write a final message to their families. And after that, they'd have a last meal. They would be read the last rites. The execution would happen between about five and six. On this day, the prison was surrounded by journalists because the crime against that poor little girl, Vari Songsu, had shocked the area. And after the, light, the last rites were read, the superintendent read the last rites to San he responded by exploding in a rage. He said, I didn't fucking do it. I don't know a goddamn thing about it. I will haunt you motherfuckers throughout all your lives. Let me see the face of the detective in charge. Where is that son of a bitch? That's a direct quote, by the way. For a moment, Chavaret was worried. What if he was innocent? What if they were going to kill a man who had done nothing wrong? Well, he was quickly reassured by the lead detective, who re-emphasized to them that San was not innocent. He had raped countless girls in the village and had certainly been involved in the murder and rape of this young child. Throughout all of this, Sane was shouting obscenities and threats at the officers and Chauchavere found himself doing something unexpected. He walked over to Sane and quietly spoke to him. And again, I quote, he said, calm down. You can't do anything at this point. Just think of it as bad karma coming back to you for what you have done. But if you are positive, when you do go, you will end up in a good place. So empty your mind of anger and negativity. This is a feature of Buddhism, by the way, the idea of thinking positive thoughts at the time of death. And Saint did calm down, but not for long. He was handed a pen and paper to write out his last will, but he turned from it and said, quote, I'm not fucking doing it. I've got nothing to give anyone. Then something changed and he switched and he turned back to the paper and he wrote a letter to his father telling his dad to not allow Sane's wife to take another husband. And he requested that his body would not be buried but be kept above ground for three years. Sam then refused last rites saying it was pointless. Equally, he refused the last meal saying they might as well just shoot him now. And so they did, they took him to the execution room where he was given a cigarette. And after a while of smoking, he was just told to drop the cigarette and he just defiantly kept on smoking in front of them. And then he entered the room. In this episode of Our Curious Past, we've met people contemplating their last ever meal. Thankfully, that's not us, but we might be thinking about our next meal. Well, if your taste buds are tinkling, I've got just the thing. 
Factors ready-to-eat meal deliveries take the stress out of meals and put the goodness in. With over 35 chef-crafted meals to choose from each week, you'll be skipping to that doorstep come mealtime. And I do mean skipping, because maybe like me, you see this new year as a chance to get healthier and eat well. That's where Factor really shines, because the restaurant-quality meals are dietitian approved with options like keto, calorie-smart, protein-plus, vegan, veggie, and more. It's not just meals either. You get snacks, smoothies, and juices delivered right to your door. With no need to meal plan, prep, or even go to the grocery store, you'll save time too. So maybe you could ramp up your health kick and use that extra time for a little exercise. Yep, with Factor, you'll be smashing your goals in 2024. Want to take Factor for a test run? Well, I have a fabulous deal for you. Go to factormeals.com curious50 and use code curious50 to get 50% off. That's code curious50 at factormeals.com curious50 to get 50% off. He entered the room. Here he was blindfolded. And then he was led to a crucifix. This is how they killed him at the time. His arms were brought over a cross, tied together like he was praying over a horizontal beam, which meant his back was to the gunman. Sane fought to have his hands not pushed together in prayer, but they did so. And as was the custom, they put a bouquet of flowers between his palms the idea was that the prisoner would die in a state, state of what at least looked like repentance. He was tied by the torso and stomach, with his feet still chained together, and then Chavero watched it all happen. He was fascinated and horrified. A screen was pulled across sand, which came between him and the gunman. Painted on a white square of cloth was a circle that lined up with the prisoner's heart. And then the executioner, on this occasion a man called Mui, was given the all clear and he stepped forward, took the gun stand from a stand and saluted the execution supervision committee and then turned to salute Sane, the offender. This was like one final gesture of forgiveness. And then he raised the barrel, placed his finger on the trigger. Now, Chavaret writes quite powerfully of this moment, saying how he and the guards felt an actual shiver as the gunman focused on his task, almost like the submachine gun had a power of itself. He writes that he couldn't, he felt like the uh, Mui couldn't even leave the room if he wanted to because the gun was in charge of this moment. And then at the lowering of a red flag, Mui pulled the trigger. There was only one shot, but it sprayed out six bullets. And after this hideously loud crack, there was a shocked silence. Mui stood up, and quickly walked out the room. Then a doctor hurried in to check, and Sane was confirmed, indeed, dead. Chavaret said that he saw the body afterwards and that it was grotesque. Sane's neck had fallen very far backwards, like he was looking into the sky, but he said that he could still hear a strange gurgling sound coming from Sane's body for six minutes after the death. He felt like Sane's soul was defiantly refusing to leave the corpse. There was a lot of blood, but officers still had to check the corpse's fingerprints. It was a routine procedure, just to confirm that the right prisoner had been shot after all. By the 15th of June, 1972, Chavaret became more involved in executions, working as an escort for three convicts who were sentenced to death. Being an escort would basically involve you personally picking up the prisoner from their cell and then taking them to the execution room. And he described it as one of the most emotionally challenging tasks in the procedure. 
because you would end up spending a considerable amount of time with the prisoner before he or she died. Not only did you have to walk them to the cell, to the room, but the escort would also be the one who would have to tie them to the cross. And when it was over, it would be the escort's job to untie the corpse and lay them down on the floor for the medical check and confirmation of identity. Even the executioner doesn't have to see the body afterwards, but the escort certainly does. Now, if Chavaret ever felt sorry for the prisoners, and he did often, he tried to remind himself of the crimes. In this case, the two men who were going to be executed had, assault, had assaulted a young librarian and her boyfriend. They had forced him to watch them rape her and then forced her to watch them kill her, boy, her boyfriend before taking her life too. And they had carried out multiple murders before this shocking incident. During the execution, one of the accused even joked that he'd killed 27 people and tried to see if the other convicts could beat that figure. So Chavaret tried to think about these sorts of things. The third convict, by the way, had murdered a farmer and this was also not his first killing. So to remember these crimes were his way of rationalizing what he was about to do. He carried on doing the escort role for quite a while and sometimes he said it was tougher than others. Like when one prisoner very calmly allowed himself to be walked to the execution room, but when he arrived, he tore off his blindfold and started sobbing for his mother. When he realized she wasn't there, he dropped to his knees and wept. They picked him up and tied him to the cross while he quietly continued to call out for his mother to help. Chavaret said that was incredibly tough, but he felt he had to do his job. Chavaret said that that was an incredibly tough thing to experience, but he said he had to do his job. And besides, the job was just fundamentally grim. Chavaret said that the room would always stink of three things, blood, sweat, and gunpowder. By the way, the blood was not cleared up straight away. They just threw sand on it so that it would be properly mopped up later in the evening by the other inmates. Now, in his line of work, he was faced with inmates who had uh, carried out truly horrendous crimes. One really horrified me. I don't really want to go into it in too much depth, but the, the kidnappers basically buried a child alive. But his killers had stuffed a bunch of flowers, incense sticks, and candles between the little boy's hands in a bid to avoid the child's spirit returning from the grave and tormenting them. He said that one of the most traumatic executions that Chavaret was part of was a woman who had killed a child. She wept and begged for mercy, claiming her innocence when uh, they went to shoot her. And somehow during the execution, her chest exploded. And so her body was taken to the morgue. But then just as the second execution took place that day, they heard a grisly sound from the morgue and the woman was somehow still alive. The officers rushed in and tried to press down on her back to make her bleed to death so that she would die quicker, and one officer even tried to strangle her until Chavaret swept his hands away in disgust. He thought that wasn't right. They had to just kind of watch her die, gasping for breath. And while he felt great pity for her, he tried to remember that she was dying in a similar way to how the little boy she had killed died through suffocation. They pressed ahead with the second execution and then decided to go back to check on the woman from before and they were appalled to see that she was still breathing. There was only one thing for it. They had to drag her from the morgue and put her back onto the cross where they 
filled her body with the full quota of 15 bullets. It was only later discovered that the woman had a very rare condition where her heart was on her right side, not her left, which explained why she didn't die straight away. Now, Chavaret said he would never forget that day for as long as he lived. I'm not surprised. By October 1984, Chavaret had become the father of three children. So when the offer of a higher pay packet from the prison came through, he was interested. Even when the promotion was to move from escort, then to gun adjuster, to the actual executioner. His first day of executions went perfectly well. He was professional and calm. There were no slip-ups. But that night, he does write that he lay in bed thinking about his new role, and he was worried about the effect it would have on his children and family. Would they be ashamed to say what daddy did for a living to their friends? Or, he wondered, could his daughter have real trouble finding a boyfriend? Because who would want to date the child of the executioner of Bang Quang? But he took comfort in the fact that his new role meant that he would not be transferred to another prison, something that did sometimes happen to officers. If he took on this role, he really would cement his position here in this place with his family. And of course, there was the better income. So as the executions went on, he learned techniques to stay calm through it all. He took up chanting. He visited monks for guidance. And like I said earlier, over those years, he pulled the trigger on 54 men and one woman. The woman uh, was a lady who turned to drug dealing to help her children. And her final letter was a plea to her kids to never follow in her footsteps, to see her as an example of how not to do things, and finally to say goodbye to them. Chavaray said that he found that day particularly upsetting too. But after killing so many people in this way, he was often asked if he ever regretted his life's work as an executioner, or at least as part of a team in those early years. He discussed this with various Buddhist monks, who explored the genuine worry that a life of you know, killing people would be flooded with bad karma. But the monks tried to encourage him to see that perhaps the prisoners were the ones swamped with bad karma and that he was somehow helping release it by carrying out the state-sanctioned punishments for their crimes. He saw his role as persuading others to not commit horrendous and brutal crimes. He would also find some comfort in comparing the way that executions used to happen in the past. For example, in previous generations, convicts would have their chests torn open so that researchers could check to see if anything different was going on in the criminal's heart. They'd even split the skulls open of the prisoners for the same reason. All this done while the convict was still alive. He also made the point that he never took any pleasure in shooting the prisoners. Indeed, he said the killings of other human beings, while in his mind were warranted, were acts that ultimately kind of depressed him because he felt compassion for the people in front of him. He also noticed how people would be awkward around him in, in the community. When him and Chu went to parties, the, You know, not many people seemed to want to socialize with the man who took the lives even of the most notorious criminals. He then, though, started to realize that most jobs are constructive. They create new things, while his tended to destroy. So he began to look for opportunities to be more creative and to share his story with the world. He wanted to demystify the world of execution, and in time, he became something of a celebrity, appearing on TV and radio, both in Thailand and beyond. Which led him to write 
his autobiography, which is where I've gotten so much of this information from, The Last Executioner, which was made into a film. And when he wasn't working at the prison or writing his books, he was still pulling out his old guitar, playing his favorite song, Yesterday, by the Beatles. After he carried out his last execution, he even joined a religious order. And as he grew older, he said he was not afraid of death or dying. Perhaps more than anybody, he knew that it is inevitable. And he wrote, quote, If I have a terminal disease, I wouldn't bother with any doctors. The thing is to die happy and not leave trouble behind for your spouse or children to deal with. Well, after he retired, he did indeed get sick. He developed cancer of the intestine and the brain, and his final years were racked with pain. Yet he kept on pushing through to carry on lecturing on the dangers of drugs and crime. The topic of capital punishment is clearly controversial, and some will agree that it is horrible yet necessary, while others will strongly say that it can only ever be a barbaric act. But the fact remains that in a world where executions do take place, they don't just happen on their own. They require systems, technology, machines, teams, and people. For me, I think it's very easy to forget that behind the tall walls of these controversial topics stand actual human beings dealing with things that I don't believe I could deal with. Whether or not they should deal with them is up to you to decide. But I don't think it hurts sometimes to see the very human face of what seems to be like one of the most shocking jobs of them all. I'm Peter Laws, and you've been listening to Shavare Jaraboon, the man who legally killed 55 people on our curious past. Well, everyone, thanks for sticking with this rather brutal episode of Our Curious Past. Um, if you like some of that darker stuff, by the way, you might want to check out my other podcast, Frightful, which specifically explores you know, really scary, disturbing stuff, true crime, the paranormal. You can find that on YouTube. It's just kind of started as a YouTube channel, but you'll also get lots of audio episodes because it, it began as audio. And that's the same with this show too. So there's a bunch more Our Curious Pasts available in audio. So just search for Our Curious Past or Frightful in your podcast apps. If you want to find out more about me, check out peterlaws.co.uk for my books and other stuff. Uh, but until next time, I really appreciate you listening. And uh, could you please, um, you know, like, subscribe, click the notification bell, all the other things that people are supposed to do. <laughs> and um, perhaps that might get this stuff in front of more people. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.